to mistakes, and Jesus, in his love for us, chased after us and, and died along the way. My hope is to show you from our text today in Ephesians that while, yes, Jesus did die, his death wasn't an accident, and our sin is much worse than simply just some mistakes. So if you've been with us for a while, you've known we've been in a sermon series through Matthew. We'll be taking a five-week break uh, from that as we approach Christmas. And there's no better time to talk about our Savior Jesus and his atoning work on the cross than right now. So we will be unpacking over the next five weeks five reasons or five different angles of the atonement, five reasons why Jesus had to die and what his atonement accomplished. Uh, so our first, uh, that our first um, week we'll be talking about a necessary atonement. That's the title of the message, but we're going to be unpacking uh, Jesus' sacrifice, right? So Jesus' sacrifice was necessary because sin is really that bad. If you leave with anything, leave with that, that Jesus' sacrifice was necessary because sin is really that bad. So I want to leave you with three reasons why sin is that bad, and then one reason from hope. I'm going to read our text, pray, and then we'll dive in. From Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I pray that you would give me wisdom and insight as I preach your text. I pray that we would understand that our sin is really, really bad. Much worse probably than we think, even than I think, uh, Lord. Uh, Lord, we know that your sin, or that our sin, Lord, is something that separates us from you. So we pray that as we unpack what it, our sin really is and the nature of our sin, that we would have uh, a fresh and bright and right understanding of the glorious good news of the gospel. Lord, it's only by knowing just how bad our sin is that the gospel is so good and the good news becomes truly good news. So we pray, Lord, that, that you would do what I cannot do, that you would preach, Lord, louder than I can preach, that you would preach to people's hearts, Lord, that you would give me wisdom to speak only the words that you would have me speak, Lord. So in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So our first, uh, our first point, sin condemns all people. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then again in verse 3, it says, Among whom we all once uh, lived. And then at the end of verse 3, like the rest of mankind. So notice that Paul says, You were dead, you once walked, we all once lived, and the rest of mankind. Paul here Make sure to include all mankind. Why? Because, Adam and, because of Adam and Eve, all mankind is sinful. I think some of us, if we're honest, we, we think of mankind kind of like a cornfield, 
that each person kind of grows out of the cornfield and rises or falls based on the merit of, its own, of their own self, their own stock, right? But the Bible paints a different picture. Instead of treating mankind like a cornfield, the Bible treats mankind like a tree. That, that one tree was Adam, and we were all branches and leaves of the one tree, Adam. And so if you imagine when the tree falls, in whom we have our life and our, our being in that tree, when that tree falls, so do all the leaves, and so do all the branches. That's the way the Bible treats mankind. That is the way the Bible talks. That's the way Paul talks. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and then in 18 and 19, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then in verse 18, he says, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. One man fell. One man disobeyed, and the many were made sinners. Or in Psalm 14, uh, the psalmist says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is not a single person who can say that sin does not apply to me. No one. There was no one outside the scope of sin and no one outside its con condemning power. Okay, so practically, this means for us that my baby daughter who's two months old is condemned by sin. The wonderful older lady who's been uh, a family uh, caretaker and provider and has been a homemaker for the last 60 years, condemned by sin. The innocent young child at school, condemned by sin. It means that our mom and dad are sinners. Our children are sinners. It means that our favorite politician or movie star or athlete are all sinners. Without the gospel, all people, all of them, are condemned by their sin because they are born from a sinful tree. We all die, we will all die in sin. And we have no hope other than Jesus. No matter how cute or kind the person is, or no matter how close you are to them, or how much you admire them. Now, I'm sure that most of us can agree that all people are sinners. After all, we made it into a church, and the church has historically proclaimed that all people are sinners, right? So I think, if we're honest, uh, we sometimes think that our sin really isn't that bad. Sure, we're all born sinners, but it's not so bad. I want to show you that not only are all people sinners, but that sin controls all people. How does sin control us? I want to show you two answers that Paul gives to this question from our text in Ephesians. First, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. All men are dead. 
all men are dead. But what does it mean to be dead? Is Paul merely using figurative language? Or is he being literal? At first glance, it would seem that, that maybe he's using some superlative languages. After all, he, he says that these dead men once walked, right? He ascribes living characteristics to dead people. But I think what Paul is describing is two different types of death. The first type of death being a physical death, right? Because of Adam's transgression, all men will die. Death entered through the sin of Adam. Physical death is a part of what it means to be human. Unless the Lord returns, we will all someday die. And Paul describes physical death as the last enemy to be defeated in 1 Corinthians. He says that is the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But the spiritual death, notice what Paul says. He says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. This is the spiritual death that Paul is describing. We are like zombies. What is a zombie? As one author puts it, zombies aren't resurrected or even resuscitated bodies. Even though their limbs are lurching and their jaws are snapping, these fictional creatures are dead. But zombies are far more morbid than mere moving corpses. Zombies feed on living flesh. They consume the living and their appetites control them. Dead people have no appetite. Dead people have no awareness. Dead people have no activity. They cannot respond to anything we do or say. The use of Paul's word in locates the nature of man. It is in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. What Paul is saying is that we aren't sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. It is our nature to deliberately sin and that we by nature miss the mark. The standard of goodness is God. Perfect obedience is what it takes. And if we go back to the garden, we see that Adam and Eve failed at one point. One. And that was enough. God kicked them out of the garden and they died a spiritual death over one infraction. We must be perfect and we cannot be. We cannot be. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are two types of death, physical and spiritual, and all men are affected. Our natures are located in sin. We are sinners first, and out of that nature, we sin. It's out of a sinful nature that we sin. But what Paul goes on to say should make our hearts cringe because he goes on to say that not only are we sinners by nature and dead in those sins, but that we are in subjection. All men are in subjection. Look at verse 2. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We are by nature born into a kingdom. There are two kingdoms, God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness. Look at Paul's words. He says, the course of the world. What is that? The prince of the power of the air. It is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. If it wasn't bad enough that all men must suffer physical death, and because of that sin that all men are by nature sinners, Paul now asserts that all men by nature are born into a kingdom of utter darkness ruled by Satan. We are born into a kingdom ruled by Satan. Satan literally means adversary, and this is how Jesus describes people under the rule of Satan. In John 8, 44, he says, You are of the father, your devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We belong to an adversary who is by nature a murderer, a liar, and a deceiver. And Jesus says, our will is to do his will. Our will is is to follow the prince of evil, the spirit of disobedience. That is the kingdom we are born into. A kingdom utterly opposed to the kingdom of God. And we bear the same consequences as Satan. Jesus says that when he passes judgment, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The fate of all who remain in the kingdom of darkness is the same as it is for the king of darkness, an eternal fire prepared from all eternity ago for the devil and his angels. In the movie The Matrix, Morpheus says, the Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us, even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. That is like what it means to live in the kingdom of darkness. Not everything seems so bad, but sin is all around us. It is everywhere in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window. You can see it when you turn on the television. You are surrounded by sin because you live in a kingdom of darkness ruled by an adversary who hates the light of goodness. Sin for us is natural. It's not just who we are, it's where we live. We should never be surprised by how bad things get. And we should never be surprised by how bad we can be. It means that we need the gospel because only the gospel can drive out the kingdom of darkness. Okay, okay. So maybe our sin is that bad. But 
I still see good in the world, right? I mean, don't you? There's still good out there. I mean, surely there remains some goodness in man. Surely. Even if the evil outweighs the good, right? There must be some goodness. Unfortunately, Paul would say that our sin doesn't just control all people, but it also corrupts all people. Sin corrupts all people. Notice verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body like the rest of mankind. What areas of our life does sin corrupt? Our passions, our desires, our mind, i.e., our whole nature. We are completely corrupt. Paul indicts the passions of the flesh, the desires of the body, and the desires of the mind. Simply put, it is our whole nature. What we desire, do, and think is corrupted by sin. Whether it be fame or fortune, wealth or success, intellectual ability or athletic ability, uh, sexual gratification, a family, love of all people, doesn't mean that those aren't good desires, but that those desires come from a corrupted will. Charles Spurgeon put it like this, as salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. What would happen if I put one drop of poison in a water bottle? Would you drink that water bottle? No. No. Because one drop of poison is enough to poison the entire bottle. Just like one drop of sin is enough to completely corrupt the whole person. Not everyone is as bad or poisonous as they could be, but they are all permeated by sin. We do not naturally desire the things of God. We do not desire His glory and His justice. And we see this in our own lives. How many of us have vowed to stop sinning? I know I have. I have done it numerous times. And every single time, what happens? I sin. Probably in the same way I said I wouldn't sin again. And probably in the same day, maybe even in the same hour. Right? It doesn't last long. And sin comes back way quicker than we ever thought it would. Martin Luther put it like this. He says, inherited sin in a man is like his beard, though shaved off today, and the man is very smooth, it grows back by tomorrow. Why? Because we fail to deal with the real problem. The real problem is that we are sinners, not just merely our choices and our sins, but that we are sinners, by nature, we are born sinners. And that is why David proclaims in Psalm 51.5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David doesn't mean that his mom was sinful for having him, that it's wrong to have kids. 
but that even at the earliest stages of conception in the womb, we are by nature sinners. There is not some island of righteousness whereby man can claim any goodness. There is not any righteousness in man. That is why Isaiah says that we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The best acts of man are tainted by sin. This is the nature of sin. Sin is selfish, seeking to carry out the passions of our flesh. Sin is proud, performing the desires of the body. Sin is deceptive, self-justifying through the desires of the mind. But how can we say that all people are completely corrupted by sin when we see goodness in the world? Surely good things do happen. If sin is really that bad, then how is there any goodness left? The answer to that is God's common grace. God restrains the evil in the heart of man. In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. God gave the law to all people. It's called a conscience. God gave us all a law. That law restrains the evil that is in the people's hearts. But sin is still working to deceive, to make men more evil than they already are. And because of this nature, we are all children of wrath. We are born justly condemned, and we, because we inherited sin from Adam, we deserve the wrath of God. God is storing up wrath for those who persist in sin. And all of us, by nature, desire to persist in sin. Sin is who we are. It is what we want. We do not want righteousness in our na- natural state. This is the precarious state of man. That by nature we are born under wrath, and we wouldn't even change that if we could. We desire to be in our sin. There is none who do not deserve the wrath of God, and there is none who are not condemned by sin. All deserve punishment from God for sin, no matter what their good deeds are, or how many good deeds they perform. Sin, it condemns us. It controls us. And it corrupts all that we are. What can we do? Can we have any hope in ourselves? No. No, we can't. 
we cannot have any hope because there is no righteousness in us whereby we might choose God. And here we come in broken humility to perhaps the two greatest words in all of Scripture. But God. But God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But God, being rich in mercy, and because of his great love, while we were still dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, he resurrected us. He made us alive. He took dead men and made them into living people. By grace, we have been saved. By grace, by God's undeserved favor, we can have life. And we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We glorify with him in heaven. Why does God do any of this? So that in the coming age, God himself will be glorified. That he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We have been saved by grace and by grace alone. When we believe in Jesus and we put our faith in Jesus, we are dead men made alive. Dead people, dead in sin, dead under the kingdom of Satan, brought out of a kingdom into light and brought out of death into life. We can do nothing of this on our own and so we cannot boast, but we can praise God for saving sinners such as I. And we can seek to follow him more faithfully each day. And if you're not a, uh, a Christian, if you're in this room and you don't believe in this Jesus, this is the gospel. This is the good news. That yes, our sin is really that bad. Yes, we are corrupt. And yes, there is no hope in mankind. And yes, we are doomed to a kingdom of darkness and to an eternal fire. But God extends to you the good news of his son. That any who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So if you do not know this Jesus, he invites you. Turn to him today. Believe in him and turn from your sins. And trust that if you have the ability to do that, it's because God has called you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. God is good and we are not. But he is so good. So trust him. 
Repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. If you are his, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Not some of it, but all of it. He will give you a new heart that can follow him faithfully. Trust him because he is so much bigger than our sin. Amen. Amen. So why did Jesus need to die? Why was his atonement necessary? Because sin really is that bad. No person except one could pay the penalty our sin deserved. Only Jesus could pay for our sin. Because Jesus never sinned. And only Jesus could bear the wrath of God that God has against sin because only Jesus is truly God and truly man. He is the true Adam who never fell, and he is the true God of the universe who satisfies the just requirements of the wrath of God. Jesus needed to die because sin was that costly, but praise God, we have a Savior who is bigger than our sin. If Jesus didn't die for us because we merely made mistakes, Jesus didn't die for us because we merely made mistakes. Jesus, unlike Mufasa, dies for us knowing just how bad we really are. And he was glad to do it. If Jesus knew, if Jesus knew just how bad you are and was glad to die for you, then what can separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing. Jesus knows that everything that is wrong with you, and he still chooses to die for you because he loves you you so we can rest in him and his death for us amen will you pray with me dear heavenly father we come before you recognizing just how bad our sin is that our sin condemns all of us there is nobody who is not under the penalty of sin lord and we come to you knowing that our sin controls us all lord that we are slaves to our sin, that we are completely corrupted by our sin. Lord, but you, Lord, sent your son to die, that while we were yet still sinners, you showed your love for us, that you sent Christ to die for our sins. Lord, so we pray that we would trust in this Jesus, that we would praise him and glorify in his work, in his saving cross work. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please stand.